This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, a podcast that follows our journey of investing. Whether you're an absolute beginner or approaching Warren Buffett status, our aim is to help break down your barriers from beginning to dividend. Now, if you are joining us for the very first time, welcome. If you're just getting up to speed, I suggest heading over and checking out our Get Started Investing podcast. But otherwise, we hope you enjoy today's episode. My name is Bryce, and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How are you going? I'm very good, Bryce. Very excited for this episode, for the interview that we've got coming up. Uh, we've, you know, we like to think globally here at Equity Mates. We like to think of ourselves as global investors. The global economy is certainly in the news, but too often global becomes a proxy for the US and maybe a little bit of Europe sprinkled in there. Yes, there's a whole wide world out there. There's there a lot of companies to invest in outside of the US and Europe, and so we've got an Asian equities analyst in here to give us a truly. Global, well, a bit more of a global perspective today. That's it. It is our pleasure to welcome to the studio, Gary Monaghan. Gary, welcome. Thank you and thanks for having me. So Gary, Gary is Investment Director of Fidelity's Asian Equities Range and is here to help us unpack Eastern markets uh, in a bit more detail. As you said, Ren, we're often very much tied to what's happening in the US, but there is plenty of awesome and interesting things happening in Eastern markets. We're going to have a look at what's driving them, where we can find opportunities, and a look at some of the stocks that demonstrate these opportunities in the uh, Asian equities range at Fidelity. But Gary, new segment, (laughs) which we're really excited about. It's called Equity Mates Biz Nerdle. Before we get stuck in... It's the Equity Mates daily guessing game. Okay. And we're going to put you up head to head against Ren. Now, he has already played this today. So he got this in three guesses, which is unusual. He normally gets it in one. So it must be tough. Oh. <laughs> it was, it was pretty tough today. <laughs> okay. Now, uh, if people want to play along at home, uh, equitymates.com slash biznerdle. Uh, once a day, there'll be a new company that you can try and guess. Can I, can I put a request that if I do more than three, can you edit it so it's three? Of course. <laughs> <laughs> we'll edit it so it's one, Gary. Don't worry. (laughs) (laughs) Hoping that it's an Asian company. All right. Clue number one. My loyalty program is called Miles and More. Next. I was the first airline to buy the Boeing 7478, the largest commercial aircraft built in the United States. I've got a couple of companies in mind. Um, Let's do the third one. Okay. Before I guess. (laughs) It was was tough. yeah. Yeah. I was founded in 1953 and my headquarters are located in Cologne, Germany. Lufthansa. He's absolutely got it. it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well done. Correct. Yeah. So uh, if you would like to play along at home, equitymates.com slash biznerdle, I'm sure Gary will be doing that every morning before <laughs> he heads into work. Definitely. Get, get, get the brain ready. Yeah, 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 yeah. Take it back to your colleagues in Hong Kong. We want to say a big spike in Asian users. Yeah. <laughs> now. Can I do one for you two later as well? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. sure. We're on. sure. Hey, hey, we ask the questions here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Gary, I think we want to start uh, macro here mm. because mm. As, as we said in the introduction, you know, the macro economy is in the news. We're talking, you know, Silicon Valley Bank and Credit Suisse seem to be dominating the headlines at the moment. Before that, it was inflation and interest rates. Well, still is inflation and interest rates. But too often we talk about the US and we don't really get a full global picture of what's going on. So I guess starting broad, can you give us a 
of an idea of how these stories are playing out in an Eastern context in, in Asia. Yes, it's quite interesting because you picked two things there that aren't necessarily such a big problem in, in Asia. Whereas there's other things in Asia, right, with reopening, you know, all these other things which are sort of a much, much bigger sort of impact for us. But if you're looking at the banks, for example, so SVB, which you used, if you just look at what they did, essentially, I won't go into too much detail because we could be here for hours, but they had an asset, li- uh, asset liability mismatch, and so they weren't really sort of hedging their interest rate risk properly. Um, and, and they had a concentration of, of deposits as well. So as soon as a couple of clients, for whatever reason, needed to withdraw, you're getting a bit of a run on the bank. Uh, and it's, from our perspective, seen as a bit of a developed market issue, right? There's some regulatory failings there as well. But if you, if you look at the banking system in, in an Asian context, one is a lot of the banks for better or for worse, are SOEs, so state-owned enterprises. Um, and so they've got full government backing at all time and you're probably not going to do anything sort of too dodgy. Don't Western banks have full government backings at all well, time? They do. Yeah, well, yeah, actually, what I was about to say, unofficially they yeah, do, yeah. but yes, um, officially the, the Asian banks sort of do, right? So they don't sort of tend to fall foul on these things. But the, the other thing is going back to the deposits and the concentration of deposits. If you just look at how the... the the customer base is, is based in Asia. It's growing because the populations are growing. Demographics, generally, not in China, but mo- most uh, other places in Asia are getting better. So you're getting more people moving into the formal sort of financial system. So you're getting deposit growth. And you look at someone like a HDFC Bank, as an example, the biggest private sort of managed bank in, in, in India. Their top 20 clients or top 20 customers account for only about 4% of the total deposits. Right. And so you, you, you don't have that same sort of risk. Um, so, so you've got, in our minds, using banks um, that, that you talked about, it's not so much of a problem for us in, in an Asian context. And I'm not saying it necessarily, you know, is it better or worse? Well, obviously, we think it's better, right? Because I'm coming at it from a biased perspective. But, you know, we, th- we think that it's not that's sort of a, an Asian issue right now. And, and, and we're seeing this actually from a market perspective that the banks haven't really reacted from a stock price perspective. And we're getting this sort of what we consider a flight to quality. And, and some of these banks are good. They're, they're really well managed. So, so that's the banks. Um, maybe on your other one, interest rates, inflation. Again, inflation hasn't really bitten us in, in, an Asia, in Asia, right? Um, you look at China, Hong Kong, where I live, Two percent ish, you know, inflation. Wow. Um, a lot of that, though, because the the cost of you know, things like oil and, and energy just hasn't gone through the roof. Um, there's been other 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 avenues that they've been getting their oil and energy, um, and so therefore we ha- they haven't had the supply constraint and, and sort of the the big issues that we've seen in the West. And and so with that, we haven't really seen the tightening in the same way as well in terms of interest rates and such. Um, where it does impact is probably on the interest rate side, it impacts the US dollar. So people often think dollar strength equals Asia equity weakness. Mm. That to us is a bit of an old fallacy, but it still lingers in the back of the mind. And it's something that we sometimes use as a, if there's a negative, baro- negative sentiment barometer that dollar strengthens and equities go down. So it can be an interesting buying signal for us. On the dollar um, story, the US dollar was incredibly strong last year. Yeah. There was, you know, invest- interest rates were going up there. Investors were moving their money into US dollars. Um, but you say that it's 
that connection is broken a little bit. So what? how did it play out last year? Yeah, well, just in general, if we go to why that connection is, so you go back to the Asian financial crisis right back in the 90s, I think it was like 97, and essentially what was happening to a degree anyway is that Asian companies, they didn't have the proper financial system as we see it today, and so they were borrowing in generally US dollar, but foreign currencies, um, currency moves happen, and suddenly you get a mismatch, right? You're, you're earning in Indonesia rupiah and you've got to pay down in your dollar debt, right? You get, you get hit quite badly. Um, what we see right now, if you look at corporates, the banking system has improved a lot. There's some good banks across the region. And that same Indonesian company is probably borrowing in local currency from its local bank. So, so the dollar impact has less of a true sort of, uh, sort of in, uh, impact on, on the businesses that we look at. But of course it's in the back of everyone's yeah, mind and yeah, so yeah. that's where I say when we see that we're like actually that could be just a, you know, a tactical opportunity to buy in what about the general economic growth picture of mm. eastern markets you know we're looking at western countries pretty weak growth outlook is that playing out over in eastern markets no it's, it's, it's still pretty strong so you're not getting going to get these sort of eight nine ten percent growth rates that we've seen before because partly because you start from a higher base, right? You can't grow at that 10% per annum. Um, I'd like to. And maybe doing that, that, that 100 to 130,000 uh, uh, thing you're talking about, you know, you can get that sort of return. That's great. But uh, from an economic perspective, it's, it's hard work. And, and for us, it's just not feasible to be growing at those sorts of levels. But look at China. Um, I mean, it's starting from a relatively lower base, if you like. It's not been very strong, um, but they're looking at 5 to 5.5% GDP growth, which in a global context is, is pretty attractive. And there are sort of policies that will be coming through to support that. What those are, we don't quite know yet. They haven't been announced. You may have seen, I think it was last weekend, uh, as we were recording this anyway, last weekend was the sort of new, what they call two sessions. So it's like an economic um, sort of party congress committee sort of meeting. Um, they've reshuffled the decks a little bit in terms of leadership and in certain sectors, um, you know, certain industries and uh, government bodies. And the message that came from that is we're looking to support growth. Um, you know, we will be providing support. Again, we don't know quite what that means, but what you do know is that when those messages come through and they say things like we are here to you know, provide support for private businesses, that it will happen. Mm. Um, and, and so what tends to happen from a China perspective, you get these broad top-down messages and kind of people figure out how to, how, how to implement it. And then for, for us, from a, an equity investing perspective, we know things are going to grow and then you start to then figure out which areas are going to be focused on now. And, and that could be an interesting sort of place to, to, to buy into. Mm. Yeah, right. Well, we want to get to uh, that conversation around China and mm. I, I think the... Uh, the largest holdings, the largest geographic exposure in your fund is China. So we'll spend a bit of time there. But uh, just closing out the macro side of things, uh, you, you mentioned that inflation and in interest rates and you know banking collapses aren't as big a story in Asia. But you did say that the biggest thing was China reopening and how that affects the region. It'd be interesting to hear how you think that's affected the region and, and how you think it will play out. But also with China, the story that just seems to linger and doesn't seem to go away is this slow-moving property crisis. Is it a crisis still? Who knows? Evergrande, I think, today, as we're recording, reached some agreement with a, a number of their creditors. 
is the world's biggest asset class, China's residential real estate, is that stable and how's the reopening story going? Yep. Just give us a bit of a, more of a detail on China, I okay. guess. Okay, yeah. right, there's, there's a few things to unpack. <laughs> there there. Is. So, so <laughs> tap, me when, tap me if I'm talking too much or to get back on track. But if we look at the reopening, right, that's the, the, the thing that's really got everyone's attention, particularly in the last couple of months. Um, China, as you know, had this sort of lockdown, right? You couldn't get in, you couldn't, it was, well, it was hard to get in, it was hard to get out. And, you know, from a corporate perspective, it's difficult to manage a business or, or work out how businesses are going when things are locked down. Um, and, you know, from a, a, a sort of a general consumer sentiment perspective within China, people were pretty down in the dumps, right? You, you just can't go out and go shopping and travel and all that sort of thing. So, so it, it had a huge sort of impact overall on, on, on the overall economy. And of course, it had an impact on the sentiment as well. And sentiment's important. Because if people don't like China or they're concerned, then you're probably not going to own Asia. And in fact, you're probably not going to look too much into GEMS, uh, global emerging markets, mm. because China is the dominant force. Um, you know, in terms of size, in terms of the way it can influence sort of markets and such. So it had this huge impact and you just, you know, you saw the A-share market in particular. So that's the mainland in, uh, stock market in China that got hit quite badly. Foreign investors um, that can buy it were, were redeeming because they just did not, didn't know what was going on. People at home in within China who are the biggest sort of drivers, if you like, of the A-share market were you know, down in the dumps, as I said. And so if you can't go out it's like oh, I'm not buying these companies either right so they just weren't they just weren't moving the needle when we got reopening coming through that kind of unwound quite at a very very fast clip and you're looking you're going right this travel company that you know, was for a while was maybe only selling a few sort of train fares here and there is now got a billion person market that it can sell overseas travel to so something like trip.com uh, went from just under twenty dollars to just over forty dollars in the space of you know a handful of weeks, basically, um, and and that's not even got to the levels from where it was at before. Um, so people are quite you know have been quite bullish on this, and it's having this impact on sentiment in terms of the consumer sentiment on the ground, and we, we think that, that that will play out in different stages, right? So the first thing is people are going to start going to cinema, you know going to restaurants and doing that kind of thing, getting back to life, you know, your day-to-day -day life. Then they'll start doing other things like more services, so going traveling and all these and these such things as well. And it will just have a, a, a nice sort of overall impact on, on sentiment on, in terms of spending as well and, and the economy. So that's really been a big sort of driver and it's got everyone refocused on Asia right at a period in time when the developed markets are you know going for a bit of a tough patch right for, for reasons that we all know so that has been you know, getting it's got the eyes back on on onto the, our part of the world now what i will say is with as we're talking now the easy money has been made right yeah. and it's been this as we call it the beta play right mm -hmm. you, you buy into something so you think the whole market's going up those beta names particularly linked to reopening and consumption that it's kind of played out so if you've missed it you've kind of missed it right um and so now it's about looking again and seeing did you miss which, it no yeah that's why I, that's why i mentioned it that's why i mentioned it, it, it if, if we did miss it i wouldn't have told, i wouldn't have i wouldn't have brought it up um so um and i'll tell you why we got it in a moment as well because it's yeah. important to dissect top level kind of macro sort of political thoughts to 
bottom up stop picking because yeah. mm. that's how you that's really how you make money but but going to what we're doing now is, is you know the reopening plays by and large played out the obvious ones travel companies and and such and now it's going what well, where's the next batch of money for sort of you know consumers money going to um what could be the second derivative or third derivative beneficiaries um and can companies actually deliver and it's about really keeping an eye on sort of earnings and such okay so we took a view middle of last year that okay take a two three year view from where we were sat will china be open or closed we said well it'll be open right we don't know if it's two months two two quarters you know but it will be open because it it just physically it's going to be hard work to contain that many people who you know feeling the pressure then when we were talking to corporates so you talk to airlines within china they said oh you know we're starting to sort of look at reopening international routes talk to the airports listen we're kind of starting to dust off the you know the, the mm. desks those sorts of companies are not doing it without a bit of you know a bit of a tap on the shoulder and told start looking at this right they wouldn't just obviously they're always looking but they wouldn't really make real proper moves until they get wind of you know however forever whatever channels that they should be doing it and that to us was like it was like something's happening we, we don't know quite the timing but this is a one of these sort of um, validation points for us that things are reopening. Hong Kong was then reopened. Hong Kong, think of Hong Kong as a canary in a coal mine for China for a lot of things, and you know Hong Kong is like the the bellwether for international markets and such. And I, th- I think, interestingly, I don't know what it would be, but the next things that happen, you know, in Hong Kong, whether it's like different regulation or it could be something to do with markets and all these things it could be a bit of a testing ground for what they might want to introduce in China, right? So think of Hong Kong as a canary in a coal mine for different things. So that, that was another validation point. And, and then you had the Congress, where President Xi was sort of you know, reappointed. And of course, they were, all the politicians stood up and said, we've done a great job with COVID, you know, job well done. Of course they're going to say that. They're not going to stand up and say, isn't this terrible, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> so they stood up and said, this is great. The markets broadly international markets took that as china's doubling down on zero covid it will mm. never open so the first week of november was like peak um, sort of peak trough if you like mm. it was like ter- mm. terrible people it was like suicidal sentiment for us that was a time to top up more and then we didn't know when the reopening would happen lo and behold it did quite quickly after that um and you know, the stocks have done quite nicely, but now we're in this sort of dust setting period. We'll get to some of the individual stocks yeah. where you, you know, the be- if the beta play has moved on, mm. I guess the question is where do you find alpha now? Yeah. Uh, but before then, uh, do you have any thoughts on the, the property uh, yeah. side of it? Yeah. yeah, so if you wind the clock back a touch, right, so the property sector, if we go back two, three years, it was starting to become dominated. The growth of the sector was dominated by the private companies the Evergrande's and the Sunax and these mm-hmm. t- sorts that, to be fair, were borrowing or, or they were leveraging up, basically. They were borrowing a lot of money um, to develop land and buy land and all these things. So it's creating a bit of a debt overhang. And it's a strategically important sector, right? For the economy to, you know, to roll along nicely, the, you know, the property sector has to be you know, going along nicely as well. With the privately managed companies gaining more control you can argue from a government perspective it's like it's starting to fall out of our hands and so they they introduced this policy called the three red lines policy and the three red line policy which came into effect 18 
months, two years ago, was essentially you couldn't go over these three red lines in terms of like leverage and, and all these. It was essentially to keep debt down. And, and it was done in a way that dinged the, the private companies. Right. And so they couldn't get money from the banks anymore. And so their funding sources were kind of drying up. You can understand where they're coming from and, and the intention. It just the market, it wasn't messaged well to the market. And people got panicked, started to sell down the property stocks. And then at the same time, individuals were going and checking on their, you know, their off plan investment that they made. Private company hasn't got funding. So like people would turn up going, look at this hole in the ground. Like, what, what, what am I paying for? And then it just, it, it just impacted sort of um, confidence in the property sector, right? So subsequently, what we have seen is the state-owned companies have come in and sort of, you know, the white knights and they're helping finish developments, they're getting new land. And we've seen a complete reversal in terms of market share from private companies to SOEs in the property sector. So essentially, if we were talking three, no, two, three years ago, about two thirds of the um, sort of market sales in China were for privately managed companies and one third SOEs. Mm. It's reversal now, it's a complete reversal. Two thirds state owned companies, one third private. Now, that's the, sort of the background, right? It's a long way of sort of going through it, but that's how, the, sort of how it's played out. Um, what we are now seeing is sort of the bottoming of the market. So we've seen some negative price growth. Um, I think it was on, on Thursday, a couple of days ago anyway, um, we saw the first sort of positive year-on-year price um, sort of data coming through for properties sold in the, in, in the tier one and tier two cities. So in China, cities are sort of tiered, right? So um, the tier one, sort of the Shanghai, Beijing sort of, sort of moved back into positive territory. Um, but just before that, we started to see a bit of a, a plateau in terms of downward prices for the secondary market. And, and interestingly, we're seeing more confidence in the secondary market in China versus the primary market, which isn't quite that common, right? The, the Chinese sort of cultural mentality is buy something new and not secondhand, but that's it's sort of changed a little bit, actually. And mm. people are a little bit more nervous on the new properties because they've, they've seen... Is it going to be finished? I don't know. Yeah, and so yeah, yeah. at least a secondary property, I know it's there and, and that's it. So, so we're seeing some bottoming of the prices. Demand, we think it will come back, but it will take time. Um, and once it does, people will feel wealthier again because it has mm. a big impact on your well, wealth. Effect, yeah. mm. And then you'll get people buy big ticket items like cars and things like that. Yeah. But, um, and so for now, consumption for us is small ticket items, using cash in the bank. Um, and then in time, as property comes back, you you might see some bigger ticket items being bought. It is fascinating to think what the headlines were two years ago when this whole thing kicked off and it was, you know, like, is this going to tank the global economy and what's the contagion? And, you know, two years later it feels like... Next question. Yeah, next question. (laughs) (laughs) It it does. And and my my experience with Asia is that there's always... the, The headline is always really negative. It's always really negative. And then you just scratch beneath the surface and, okay, there may be one or two sort of negative bits in there, but there's often, you know, there's often some glimmers of hope, right? And, and so you, there's always an opportunity. Um, and, and often when particularly international investors are panicked and they think, gosh, you know, don't touch you with a barge pole, is when you can go mm. in and you can make some good money. Mm. Um, and it's, it's difficult to do, though, because you've got to be... Sometimes you've got to just bite the bullet yeah. and go for it. yeah. Well, let's move to opportunities and, and what's in the portfolios. So 46% of the fund is invested in China, which is 
overweight compared to the benchmark. But when you th- when we think about China, a lot of the Equity Mates audience think the big sort of tech companies, those big names, Tencent, Alibaba, Meituan, etc. But you're underweight on don't those companies. Yeah, we don't own them. Don't own them at all. There you it's go. As underweight as you can be. Can't yeah. get much more <laughs> underweight than that. Yeah. <laughs> what's what's the what, why is that? Yeah. So regulation that you're aware of in this pro- in the internet sector, you've probably maybe touched on this in past episodes, but. If you take Tencent and, and Alibaba, they're effectively monopolies in their, well, at least the most dominant forces in e-commerce for Alibaba and sort of platform messaging and, and gaming for um, Tencent. They were using that sort of, you know, their, their monopoly powers, if you like, to, you know, for data and as you would, right? You're using it for, you know, I've got this great data and I can Mr. Advertiser, I can, yeah. you know, give you, I can... Just, just like Facebook, Western... Just like everyone, everyone yeah, does it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, but the other thing they were also doing is anyone that sort of even smelt a little bit like they were going to compete, they just used their size and sort of bought, the, they bought that up-and-coming company. So like Western tech yeah, companies. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, and, and sometimes they mothballed that company, sometimes they, you know, integrated it. Um, and... With that, you know, there was obviously you come under regulatory scrutiny, and and at the time, actually, when it first kicked off around November 2020, actually, it was during the, when COVID first hit, the whole sort of premise, you know, was um, you know, trying to you know, sort of bring the companies sort of somewhat into control a little bit, um, making sure the rules are in place around data security, data privacy, and, and then sort of trying to blow apart a touch some of the monopoly powers that the, some of these companies had. Depending on what seat you sat in, again, if you're, you know, top-down government, you, you might want to do that. You know, you, if you like, create a bit more of a level, sort of competitive playing field. For an equity perspective, you know, that has happened. The, the playing field is is you know, more open than it has been. For us now, that means that there's more players in the in the marketplace in the internet space. Mm. And so, you know, you've got tons of different sort of platforms you've got your jds your Meituan, your billy billy your pindoda you you know there's, there's tons of them these money these companies are, make a lot of money through eyeballs and so you've got two eyeballs but you might have 25 apps on your phone so one if you're a consumer you, you might spread you know i'll buy this product from these guys or i like i'll use this one on this from these other guys um, and then if you're an advertiser you're also thinking right okay which one do i go with mm. um and you know and so so with that we think that the businesses are sort of you know, structurally changed and some of them still make money but not to the degree that they ever did and if they did then they're straight back in the regulatory spotlight again mm. and and so for us they're, they're uh, there's a little bit of a cap, if you like, in terms of you know what they can really sort of do compared to maybe the way you looked at them two three years ago uh, and so we're steering clear Mm. But if they get cheap enough, maybe. Uh, one more question on China and mm. then let's move to other parts of Asia. But I feel like if we're going to ask you what you're not buying in China, we have to then ask you what gets you excited in China, you know, sector or industry or if there are any specific names. Yeah. But uh, if your fund is overweight China, as yeah. Bryce said, but underweight uh, some of those big tech names, what are the sectors that stand out? Yeah, well, first of all, if you look at China, you've, there's different parts of the China market. You've got the A-share onshore market. So that's the Shanghai and Shenzhen indexes. Um, You've got the Hong Kong H-shares, which most international investors would would be aware of. Then you've got some of the US 
um, ADR, so Chinese companies listed mm-hmm. in the US. Um, and so for us, we find in the A-share market is really interesting. Um, it's less well understood. Um, it's less well researched. And, and there's 4,000 companies listed in mm. China. And you only have to own a handful of them and you can make, you know, and you can make some decent money. So we, we, we like the A-share market first and foremost. And because of the swings in sentiment that happen mm. there, you can get some real interesting sort of value opportunities for good businesses that people just don't own because like, oh, it's a Chinese yeah. onshore company yeah. and they don't understand it. Um, to really truly understand that, though, you need the team. So you speak Mandarin and they can read the reports and they can get the nuances. Um, and so that for us, we think is a bit of an edge. Which companies, I, I can talk for a couple. Um, we've got Focus Media, which is a... Yeah, I, I saw that was your biggest that, holding. Yeah, Never heard 10%. of it before. Yeah. So. yeah, so they do digital display advertising, right, which essentially, you know, the, the screens that you get in elevators and screens that you see in shopping malls, mm. that's what they do, right? It, it's not a, you know, it's not one of these sort of like un, these businesses that you can't understand. It's quite an easy one to understand. Yeah, so like an O Media or yeah. a JD Deco in Australia. Yeah, it's a, it's a bit like that actually, yeah. yeah. And, and what they've done is they've got a lot of first mover advantage and so they've got about 75 to 80% market share in that whole space which is good if you can do if, yeah, if you've got it yeah, yeah. and and what we like about it actually is that once you've got your screen in an elevator someone can't just stick another screen in front right and going back to my point on on the internet companies someone someone can you know, the pop up can be taken over mm. by another company you know by another advertiser so the for us the focus media is a dominant player in its field. The elevator, what we call the elevator and escalator screen advertising is actually gaining market share at a good fast rate as well. Going back to my earlier point, the advertisers are less enamored with online mm. advertising, um, partly because of the reasons I mentioned that there's just more platforms and so they're not quite sure who to pick. But the other one which is interesting is that Consumer companies, you know, something like China Mingyu Dairy, right, is a, they do yogurts and milk and such. They said, well, we need a broad audience, right? We, we're trying to sell yogurts. Anyone can eat it. Put it on a screen where you know there's going to be 10,000 people walking through and sort of flash it and make it look fancy. People will remember it. But if you're China Mingyu Dairy and you're going to one of the platforms, you know, what data can you give me? And it becomes a very targeted advertising mm. way of advertising. And so the return on investment from an advertising perspective is actually lower. Uh, and so they're going to these these screens. Of course, it got smashed, right? A couple of months, uh, a couple of years ago, because the consumer sentiment that I talked about, people mm. couldn't go out. Yeah. And we're like, net cash on the balance sheet, a interesting business for when things do turn around and consumer confidence comes back. Dominant market share, which means it's got pricing power. Let's, let's, let's buy into it, and, and we did. Um, and it's been, you know, for us in the last few months, it's been a very, uh, uh, it's been a little, uh, <laughs> it's been a very much um, a sort of a good sort of opportunity for us overall. Mm. The risks on that, of course, are, you know, you've got to think about regulation. But if you're an advertiser for a billboard, essentially a screen, you, your regulation risk quite low. The biggest risk is that your product, you know, your, the guy who does a product sign off and puts through an advertisement that's you know slightly risky or what have you but that's minimal because you should, you should they, sh- they should have the compliance in place and so you've got less regulatory risk um overall and yeah so the economy bounces back which we think it is consumer comes back we think we can make some some good money on that 
and it's not known. So it comes back into there focus. You go. Love that. It is known now. <laughs> yes. It's known now. <laughs> People and like, yeah. And I, I'll show you, I'll sh- after this, I'll show you a picture of like how it kind of works. It's obvious, but um, it's quite smart how they do it. Oh, well. yeah. Yeah, it's good. Great. Another idea, if yeah. you like. So yeah, um, going to the property sector, we don't like the developers. Cause I said, I was going to say, you're a very brave man if you're no. coming on here and pitching a developer. No, 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 not developers because partly because they're now SOE dominated, you want to be with the SOEs if you're going to invest in there. Mm. But the problem with investing in state-owned companies is that they're not always managed for value, right? They're managed for volume and other purposes. So for us, not the great investment. But we like some of the building materials companies. So Beijing Oriental Yuhong, which sell uh, a manufacturer and sell um, waterproofing, so silicon that goes around your sinks and and the membranes that go on your roof. They've got a big market share there. Um, we like SK Shoe Paint, so paint business. And what's interesting for us from a top-down perspective is we think that the property sector is sort of, you know, bottoming and could improve. But also from a company perspective, they don't really care which developer wins, which developer's mm. finishing a project. So they're going to sell the, the, the paint to whoever it is. And so for us, don't try and guess, you know, which developer's going to be the hero just buy the company that's going to sell stuff to whoever it is. Yeah. Uh, and, and so it's a really sort of a second derivative play on that sort of return. Um, and there's a market share story here, because, gaining story too, because with the property sector going you know, belly up, companies, developers weren't paying the bills, right? And so invoices were going unpaid mm. and what we call account receivables were going up for building materials companies. And if you could stay still, if you had deep pockets and you could wear the pain, and it is pain, and it was painful, you, you're gaining market share because your competitors are getting taken out. Mm. And we've seen like Yuhong go from sort of around 10% market share to 20% market share in a couple of years. Oh, wow. Um, and so you know, mathematically, every time you see a development being built, there's a 20% chance that they're selling you know, their products, their waterproofing to, you know, to that developer. So um, for us, it's a sector everyone hates and so therefore cheap. Again, cash on the balance sheet, and sort of hopefully we get a bit of a, you know, a, a sustained turn in the property sector, create a nice tailwind. Mm. So, yeah, it creates about four and a half, five percent position in both SK Shu and Oriental Yuhong in the fund. Nice. Nice. So, Gary, outside of China, you've got geographic exposure in Taiwan, Hong Kong, India, Netherlands, which we'll get to. Not sure why yep. that's in an India fund. <laughs> Maybe may yeah, a yeah. dumb question, but uh, South Korea, Indonesia, Malaysia, the list goes on. Yeah. So outside of the two superpowers, China and India, where else are you seeing real opportunity? At the moment, um, Korea is interesting in terms of we think there's a bit of a turn in the tech cycle that's coming. Um, we're seeing broadly across the tech cycle, the inventory sort of numbers are improving. Um, if you're talking about like memory, for example, the inventory has gone down from roughly 10 weeks to eight weeks. So it's on a sort of an improving trajectory, but it's not... Um, it's not a straight line up, right? So you, you have to be aware of that. But with the valuations that they were trading at, they're not anymore, but the likes of SK Hynix, um, which is a memory player in, in Korea, was a, a few months back trading at points, one, 0.7 price to book, which you know, in, in historically mm. was a slam dunk buy. Yeah. Uh, you kind of close your eyes and you're going to make some money off of it. Um, <laughs> it's, fortunately, in a way, it's, it's popped and it's now not as cheap as it was. But um, for us, we think that the, the tech cycle generally is 
somewhat improving. Again, as I said, it's not there's a demand, a global demand environment to keep an eye on, so which we have to keep you know constantly checking. Um, but you know there are signs of sort of life, if you like, on those. And 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 what we found historically is that these semiconductor companies tend to move around two to two and a half quarters before the the business improves. So you you you, you if you buy on the news of the business actually being positive probably missed a good sort of you know two quarters at least of of, of decent returns so uh, we've been buying into the, into those areas so sk hynix um smaller position in samsung electronic same story you know memory really moves the needle there um and you mentioned netherlands asml plays into that yeah so how, how does a dutch uh lithography company yeah. uh get in an asian fund <laughs> They just want ASML. Who doesn't want ASML? It's quite simple. There's a couple of things that happened. One is we're talking to the TSMCs and Samsung and SK Hynixes. Said all of them, you know, sort of a straw poll. What, what concerns you in terms of, if you look across your sort of supply chain and, and your value chain, and they're like lithography. Mm. Right? If something goes wrong, you know, with lithography, we have got no other option. It's ASML. Yeah. Okay, okay, right. Very good. 81% or so, just over 81% of its EBIT comes from Asia. Yeah. It's EUV machines, as they're called, um, which is the lithography machines. The new generation of them, the, the order book is full until 2026. Pretty much all Asian clients. Um, and, you know, okay, they're listed in the Netherlands, but for us, it's a, there's a big, huge Asia sort of story there because the, the demand for their for their product is from the, the tech companies out here in, in our part of the world. So is that part of the rules of your fund that if a company's earning a certain percentage of revenue or profit from Asia, it fits the criteria? Correct, yeah. We have to uh, get through it. And I will say the strict compliance department in <laughs> Australia. Uh, and we, we, have to make, we have to actually make a case. So we get the CIO sign-off, of course, and, and uh, it has to be it's covered by the analysts. We've got to make sure we do all of that, you know, those cross-checks and then compliance in... In Australia, give the final sign-off, okay. um, and yeah. so they will. If if they even sniff that it's, you know, it's a slightly kind of you know wishy-washy story. It's, there's no chance. Yeah. Okay. Through. Yeah. Is that the same with the benchmark? Would Would the benchmark have ASML in it as well? No. Yeah. No, the benchmark doesn't. So it's, it's in the European European yeah. Uh, yeah. index. Mm. Yeah. Nice. So okay. does that mean, in theory, you know, there was a while. I don't know if they're still doing it, but Starbucks is opening like. 100 stores a day. I was about to say something. a day, but that's not yeah. true. But like, they were just opening a stupid amount of stores yeah. and like all their growth was coming from China. If, you know, all of a sudden Starbucks was earning more from China than it, or from Asia than it was America, could then you make a case that it's in the fund? In theory, yeah. Not saying that it's there. Yeah, yeah, I know. Like, I know. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. I, know, I know what you mean. Um, in theory, yes. Mm. But we also then, we have rules around how much we can truly take off benchmarks. So yeah, if you start okay. to go sort of beyond sort of 15, you know, 10, 15% in non-Asian companies, then, then the, the, the brakes are put on as yeah, well. So, yeah, yeah. so that there are, there are sort of guidelines in, around that as well, mm. which we, we can't get past. And One I have to come, I can't, don't quote me on the exact number because I cannot remember yeah, the, yeah, uh, yeah. what the number is. Yeah. One of the advantages of active management, I guess. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, Especially in markets like this, yeah. I think. Yes. Uh, gems, those uh, emerging markets. What was the G for? Global. Global. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, I think that's, that's always the challenge with emerging market indexes. Yeah. Uh, at least traditionally, it's been a lot of resources companies yep. and, you know, it hasn't been the sexy up and coming companies. It's been sort of slow growing established businesses and so that's where like you know looking at an active manager makes sense in a market well yeah a couple of bits there i mean we are benchmark agnostic right in that the benchmark is there as a kind of a guide for everyone to kind of roughly what's in favor and and not but it's also it's just something to beat in terms of like returns and I, i play well i used to play football not so much now but the analogy i'll use is that if if you as a team playing to your own strengths and you worry about you, you you should hopefully do all right if you worry about the other team you start you don't play your own game mm. and, and the same with the, with investing if you think about the benchmark and you you look at it you start to slowly creep towards it and you look like the benchmark but if you can stick to your strength which for us you know we think is stop picking and knowing the companies by taking a differentiated approach you can beat the benchmark mm. uh, and ho- hopefully quite handsomely um, and, and that's sort of the way we, we approach it. Is it's there? It's interesting sometimes, but there are massive flaws with the benchmark as well. Just how they classify companies, and you know, you look at some of these and go, what is, that? "Is that a real estate business, or is that a conglomerate, or is that is that really an industrial company?" Mm. It, 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 it can be a bit misleading as well. Um, so, so for us, it's there. It's a guide. It's, it's a guide to beat, basically. Mm. Mm. So, Gary, we're almost out of time, but we have mentioned India a few times. And uh, I've noticed that one of your biggest holdings was HDFC Bank. Yes. And it's a company I want to ask you about because it's not the first time we've come across this company. Um, we've had a few uh, international uh, experts come on and talk about it as like a really well-run bank. I guess tell us about it. Like why why does everyone seem to love this Indian bank? Yeah, um you said it, it's well run. I mean, it, it, I mean, it generally is. It, it's, it's a really well run bank. And the the other things to think about is that with India generally, the demographics are getting attractive, right? So people are moving into the workforce, you're getting a rising middle class. So if, if you look at GDP per capita in India today, it's where China was 15 years ago. And I'm not saying the Indian consumer is going to be the next China consumer, but if anyone's going to give it a crack, it would be the Indian economy. And and with that, as people get richer, as they start opening bank accounts, they move into the sector, into the banking system. Then they start using credit cards. Then they start, you know, getting small loans. And someone like HDFC Bank that's going to, you know, get and attract more of this sort of, uh, the, of, of this emerging middle class, it's this whole sort of rising tide lifts all boats sort of mm. story. So for us, a really interesting company. Um, but that top-down sort of tailwind very well managed as you said but they've got a lot of things in the you know, in the background like automated around the loan um, loan approvals um, so take away the human error potentially that you might see in some other emerging markets in terms of you know building up your, your loan books and such and so all of that combined for us makes it a really good company however for us in India generally we're still a little bit we're a little bit concerned actually with India okay. valuations are quite high um, and when you're trading at a really high valuation, you kind of got to be perfect. And what we've seen with like the Adani Group, for example, a few mm-hmm. weeks back, it's not a perfect market. And so, and so there are some sort of risks. And where, where we see a bit of a risk at the moment and what we're keeping an eye on, ready potentially if there's a derating of the market to buy into, by the way, is, is just more on the consumer side where inflation is starting to pick up a touch in, in India. 
and it is having an impact at the margins at the moment on end demand for consumer discretionary. And again, if you're trading at you know, huge valuations, just a little bit of a you know, disappointment can drive some deratings. So, so for us, we're generally cautious on the entire market. Got our eye on a few few names that we hope fall into our price bracket, um, and but maintain our position in, in HDFC Bank, which, as I said, is a, a really good company from our perspective. Mm. I'm fascinated with India, and we're lucky enough to have another expert from Fidelity joining us um, a little bit later on in the year to specifically talk in more detail about India and emerging markets. So um, so we'll have to get those few names that are on your list off, yes. off, uh, next time. Yes. yes. But Gary, thank you so much. It's been great uh, to get out of the mindset of Western markets and America and Apple and all those other big Western names that we often gravitate towards and uh, understand more about the opportunities in uh, Eastern markets and and some of the nuances between the two. Uh, If you're listening along at home and you'd like more information um, about the funds, you can head to fidelity.com.au and then there's a a whole section on all of their Asian equities funds. Similarly, if you want to know more about active management and managed funds and how you can get access, they've got a Learn Hub on their website as well. We will also put link in the show notes notes with uh, everything that we've mentioned today. One more question, Gary, before we do go. Uh, you are now officially in the running for Equitymates Expert of the Year, okay. which is voted by our audience at the end of the year. We celebrate products, platforms, and people that really contribute to making financial markets more accessible for our audience. And by virtue of sitting here with us today, you are automatically in the running. To help, with our, uh, to help our audience understand a little bit more about you, where would you put the coveted trophy that we would be awarding you <laughs> well first of all can you make sure you edit this so it is a good interview yeah. um, so, and, and, and i could be in the running second of all i'll go on the terrace out in the in the uh, at home nice because we, we need a goal post so if not, if not so, so uh, it, 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 we'll make a decent goal post you're gonna need to win for two years aren't you so you well, that's why posts. i'll come back next yeah, year yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right we will hold you to that and uh, as we close out at the start of the interview, we played Biz Nerdle. Uh, you uh, wanted to write a reply. Do you have one ready to go? I do. All right. Well, oh, Bryce, should we go head to head? Yeah, sure. <laughs> okay. <laughs> if it's going to be like a Chinese uh, waterproofing company, yeah. I'm just going to say there's no way I'm getting <laughs> <Yeah>. this. <laughs> okay. Are you ready? Yeah. yeah. I have the biggest brand value within the whole beverage uh, sector globally. It's um, uh, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna get this wrong. I'm not uh, gonna look Qu- it up. No, it's uh, uh, Kei Choi Mutai or what? However you pronounce it, Kei Choi Mutai. Yeah, <laughs> yes, Kei Choi Mutai. It is. It is. It is. I should have made it more difficult. Are you sure? I? <laughs> I actually did. I knew it was one of your biggest holdings, so yeah. that did. No, help. Interesting is because yeah. Mutai. Like champagne, you can only get champagne from champagne in France. Mm. You can only get multi from multi. Uh, oh, it's a region. It's a region, yeah. So okay. Quechow and multi. It's the region and the town. And they make um, the... Baiju. Like the, yeah, yeah, the yeah. The So yeah. Um, it, it Baiju, cuts, yeah, cuts through the grease. Yeah, the food, okay. You know? it's, uh, <laughs> have you had to have, drink a bit of that while cuts you're the liver visiting well. companies? Uh, I've, I've, I've had a... I've had my fair share. Yeah, 53% is quite tough going. But, really? um, yeah, it's, yeah, right. And it's expensive, like well, for the bottles. When you come back for Expert of the Year next year, you can bring us a bottle. Grease the... Grease the yeah, <laughs> uh, well, I'll, I'll have to get a loan for that. Yeah. It's, it's quite expensive. <laughs> well, Gary, thanks for that. That's the first time that we've had a 
expert-led biznerdle, so uh, maybe we'll have to force some other experts yeah. into it as well. <laughs> but thoroughly enjoyable. I know a lot of our audience would have taken a lot from the conversation today, so thank you very much. No, thank you for having me. You have been listening to an Equitymates Media production. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equitymates Media acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. This podcast is intended for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general advice only and has not taken into account your personal financial circumstances, needs or objectives. Before acting on general advice, you should consider if it is relevant to your needs and read the relevant product disclosure statement. And if you're unsure, please speak to a financial professional. The hosts of this podcast and their guests may have positions in the companies mentioned. Equitymates Media operates under an Australian Financial Services Licence 540697.